Well, welcome to Palm Vista Community Church. This morning we continue our series in the letter of 1 Peter. The series is entitled, Living as Suffering Saints for God's Promised Glory. Living as Suffering Saints for God's Promised Glory. And this morning's sermon is entitled, Where Hope Lives. Where Hope Lives. And our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Where Hope Lives. And so we've been talking about, Peter has been talking about hope. Peter wrote this letter to suffering Christians in the first century, but it comes down to us as suffering Christians in the 21st century, doesn't it? And so Peter has been writing about hope. In verses 3 to 12, he describes this hope. It is a living hope because this hope is birthed by Jesus Christ, who is alive. He rose from the dead. This hope that Peter has been talking to us about the last couple of weeks is our inheritance. It's something that's kept in heaven for you and for me if you are a Christian. Now, if you're here this morning and you would say, Al, I don't know what you're talking about as far as a living hope. I don't know about an inheritance in heaven. I'd actually like to have an inheritance here on earth. Talk to me about that. But what are you talking about? Well, I'm glad you're here. And and, and I pray that God would speak to your heart today. If this is not your hope, then I pray that God would open your hearts and it would become your hope because the Holy Spirit would speak to you. You're going to hear about the hope. But the text this morning isn't so much about the hope, but for the vast majority of us, it's about where your hope lives. Where hope lives. Where does hope live? So, so if, if God has given you that hope, we studied a couple of weeks ago that as a Christian, by definition, the Bible says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We've been talking about that hope for the last couple of weeks. All right, so you've been born again to a living hope. But is your hope at home? Or is it homeless? Right? This text is talking about where we set our hope. And sometimes our hope can get lost, right? And this text this morning, it's like a map. Now, I'm over 50, so of course I'm going to say a map. But most of you are going to look at me and say, map? No one uses maps anymore, Al. Okay, it's like a GPS. Thank you. You still use a map. You say, that's right. All right, old school. We're the last two in Miami that use maps. <laughs> So so this text is like that GPS, like that voice, right? Like Siri, turn left here, stop here, turn around because you missed it again, Al. (laughs) She never says it with enough time to do it, right? I mean, she's like, turn left here as I'm, you know, passing the road. Now, some of you may say, but Al, if you weren't passing the road at 80, you would have time to turn. Okay, I got that. I got that. I got that. And your laughter betrays you too, okay? But, but this text is like a map. It's like a GPS. Listen, where, where does hope live? Well, according to the Bible, we know the answer, don't we? Hope lives in the city whose builder, sustainer, and architect is God. And, and, if, and if hope had a home in that city, it would be on one eternity lane. 
And we know that the foundation of hope's home is Christ. We've got that. We've been studying that the last couple of weeks from verses 3 to 12. So where hope lives, well, we know where hope lives, but now bring it down. Where does your hope live? Again, if you don't have this hope, let's talk about God giving you that hope. But if you have it, you can misplace it sometimes, can't you? Your hope can be wandering around, trying to find a home in somewhere other than the city of God, somewhere other than the home that his foundation is Christ. You can, your hope can wander into your job. Your hope can wander into your career. Your hope can wander into that relationship you want. Your hope can wander into resolving that conflict. Your hope can wander into fill in the blank. But your hope can get lost a little bit, right? And it was for these Christians because the trials and tribulations of a fallen world can fog up our minds, can get us a little disoriented, and suddenly our hope is wandering around kind of homeless. So we want, we want the hope to come back home. So we want to remind one another where hope lives. But as I preach that, I want to ask you, where does your hope live? I mean, really, for reals, as my kids used to say. I know you know the right answer. Oh, my hope lives in the city of God. The home that Jesus is the foundation of. Yeah, but where does it practically live right now? Okay? All right, so that's where we're going with this text. And to answer that question, uh, Peter basically gives us one command, and it's up on the screen. Hope in Christ. That's it. If, If you were to take this text and summarize it into one statement, it's hope in Christ. And and he's going to say to us, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed in Jesus Christ. But our hope can get lost a little bit. And so some of us can be asking ourselves, well, how do we set our hope fully in Christ? I mean, that's the question I think that drives this text. How do I set my hope fully in Christ? How do I do it? Well, God answers that question right here in this text. So, let us turn our GPS on and let us read the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. You got it on? Are your maps out? Are your GPSs on? All right, here we go. Therefore, you always have to ask yourself, what's that therefore, therefore? Well, based upon the fact that he's defined what hope is, verses 3 to 12, therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in Christ. So here's the command. Look at verse 13. Therefore, because you've been born again to a living hope by God's grace, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apparently, some of them had lost their way. And their hope wasn't set on the grace to be revealed to them in Jesus Christ. They had lost their way because of the sufferings they were going through. They were, they were not seeing the grace clearly. That word grace in verse 13 is referring to the consummation of the salvation that they have in Christ. Let me be clear about that. This grace here in verse 13 is a future grace that will be fully revealed when Jesus comes back. So we've we've studied already in the previous verses, God keeps our inheritance in heaven and then he keeps us for that inheritance or for the salvation that will be revealed fully at the coming of Jesus Christ. So the Bible would say we have been saved, justification, okay? We are being saved, sanctification, what most of us are going through now, becoming more like Christ. And one day, the Bible says we will be saved, glorification. When Jesus comes back, our bodies are changed into eternal bodies. The final enemy, death, is defeated, and The salvation that we have now, we've tasted and we have, in part, will be fully consummated because everything will be made new. Right now, our hearts are made new and we have a spiritual inheritance, but then we will actually be in a new heaven, a new earth. It's going to be amazing. That's the grace he's telling those suffering saints to set their hope on. Okay? And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we set our hope fully on that grace? And so Paul in verse, or Peter in verse 13 gives them the first way they do it. Point one, we set our hope fully on Christ by developing healthy minds. Healthy minds. What do you mean by that, Al? We'll look back at verse 13. You'll notice that the command or the imperative is set your mind, but then there's two participles that are before that, two ing words before that, that give you kind of the condition, how you do that. The first one is this, therefore, comma, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. What in the world does that mean? Well, literally, in the Greek, the Greek word there is to gird the loins of your minds. Oh, Al, you're getting a little weird here. What are you talking about? All right. Let me explain. So what, what Peter has in mind is the New Testament clothing, first century clothing. Typically, people wore long robes all the way down to their ankle. All right? So imagine yourself having to take action, because it says in verse 13, right, preparing your minds for action. So if you're going to take action, let's say you're going to run, let's say you're going to fight, you know, let's say you're going to do whatever, a lot of heavy lifting. What they did back then is they would grab the bottom of their robe and they'd bring it up and they'd tuck it into their belt, freeing their legs for action. 
So that's the idea he has. For your mind, prepare your mind for action. Gird the loins of your mind. Now, to give you a modern-day illustration, just to reinforce it for you, again, I searched high and low for an illustration that didn't encompass either war or sports, and I failed. All right? So I I give you none other than the NBA tearaway warm-ups. All right, there you go. So, so try to imagine this, right? If you notice these two basketball players, are, and you notice one guy, he kind of looks like there's buttons on the side of his warm-ups, because there are. There you go. And uh, so imagine this guy is on the bench. He's in his warm-ups here practicing. But when the coach, in the heat of the game, the coach says, Chris Paul, who happens to be a guy on the left, get in the game. What does he do? He stands up. Have you ever seen him do it? And the buttons release, and he tears away the warm-ups. That's the idea. What's he doing? He's freeing his legs to get in the game for action. Your mind needs to be prepared for action that way. Because sometimes around our minds, because of the suffering and the trials and elections and debates and and people making decisions that we don't like and traffic and and your boss and your neighbor and your spouse or your kids or me, I don't know, your mind gets a little bit kind of verklempt. You know, it's like... You know, I, I got something around my, my, and I'm just, I'm not free for action. I'm a little blinded. God's saying, prepare your mind for action. Think rightly. Have a healthy mind. Now, to reinforce that, look at the next part of verse 13. He says, being sober-minded. There's another I-N-G word, Okay. So those two things prepare us to set our hope fully on the grace to come. The grace is this way. Help us set our hope fully on the grace to come. So what does it mean to be sober-minded? Again, the Greek there has a range of meaning. That range of meaning includes clarity or good judgment. So, So what he's saying is you're freeing your legs for action, but then be clear about what's actually happening. Because when you lose your job... Future grace can get a little fuzzy, can't, can't it? It's like a cloud. It's like fog descends on your life. When you get the diagnosis of possible skin cancer, your mind can get a little cloudy. When there's conflict in your life, right? Much less if you actually are being persecuted, which may happen to us. It was happening to these Christians. It may happen to us. But just the normal stuff of life, you know? You fail a class or do poorly in a class or... You know, fill in the blank. You need clarity. And the illustration I would have is just thinking of those basketball players. So they, they pull away the tearaway warm-ups. And typically, if they're going to go in the game, what do they do? They go over to the scorer's table and they say, okay, at the next timeout, I'm going in. And they'll take a knee at the scorer's table and they're watching. That's the sober-mindedness. So I've got clarity. The guy is watching the game. He knows he's about at the next timeout, at the next whatever, someone gets fouled and you'll hear the, the horn go off and he'll run in. Okay, and he's ready. He's ready for action. He's clear-minded. And we have to be that. You see, if, if, if hope's home in one eternity lane has the foundation of Jesus Christ, and it does, then its windows are a healthy mind. Its windows are a healthy mind. A healthy mind. That is what Peter, what God is telling us. We've got to have that or else we suddenly lose our focus on the grace to come and the stuff of this world just clouds our mind and binds up our legs spiritually and we just can't do anything. 
And we lose hope. I mean, we never lose it. But we're just not aware of it. We're not aware of it. So I guess the question for application for you is, how do I develop a healthy mind? Because as Peter David says in this quote up on the screen, the need of the hour is clear judgment and a mind and will prepared to resist anything that would deflect them from a hope set on Jesus appearing. What in your life is binding your legs right now? What in your life is causing fog so you're, you're, you're not seeing the grace to come? What is it? Relationship? A desire in your heart that's inordinately strong and driving you? Rip it away. Ask God to give you clarity that the wind of the Spirit would blow away the fog and the smoke so that I'm not ruled by my present circumstances or trials or even desires, but something controls me. I'm willing to defer some things because I see clearly a grace and a glory to come that far outweighs anything here. My hope isn't in the wrong house. It's not in people's acceptance of me or in a certain number in my bank account, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. A healthy mind. A healthy mind is how we set our hope fully on Christ, but not just a healthy mind, because what what Peter's saying, don't just look at future grace, look at present and past grace. Point two, live holy lives. Healthy minds are like the windows of this home where hope resides. Holy lives are like the walls of that home. Because remember, that home, its architect, its builder, its owner, and the one who makes it available to us is God. So that home must reflect who God is, and that's exactly what Peter is saying. He's saying, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed by looking at the future grace with a clear, healthy mind and by living in the present grace because of what God has done for you in the past. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you, past tense is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What is he saying here? He's saying that past grace defines me. We are now defined, if you're a Christian, you're defined as a, as a child of God. God adopted you in Christ. He gave you life in Christ. You're an obedient child. So that's how I'm defined by past grace. And present grace enables me to live like who I am, or at least make a good, strong, oh, faith-filled effort to do so. Even when I fail, I'm looking to Christ who defines me. That's what he means there. That I'm not living according to the passions of my former ignorance as I was apart from Christ, but I'm living according to the present grace of what I know of God. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, do it because you were created by God and therefore live as he is, your creator, your father. As a matter of fact, Peter here is quoting Uh, Leviticus 11.44, there in verse 16, since it is written, and now he quotes, these are actually God's words to God's people back in Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. A holy life. A holy life. 
And then he, he appeals further to the grace of God. And he says in verse 17, And if you call on him as father, will you do because he called you first? That's God's grace. Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. That Greek word there is phobos. We get phobia from it. Fear throughout the time of your exile. So what he's saying is this. How do I set my hope on the coming grace in Christ? One, I have a healthy mind. Two, I live a holy life by the power of God who has called me. We live in reverential fear of God. We live holy lives primarily out of gratitude because he called us and he found us and he saved us and he gave us life and he made us his father. We become, we're his children adopted by him. So out of gratitude, we live in reverential awe in the fear of the Lord as exiles on this earth. Yes, that is the primary motivation. But there's a second one. Because he's an impartial judge. He is your father. But please don't confuse him with a father that would be an indulgent father. Because he's not. He loves you. But he's a perfect father. And we, we must respect the fact that he will judge us impartially according to our deeds. That helps me. I'm motivated by gratitude, but don't miss the other motivation here that Peter gives us. There's a healthy respect and reverential awe of God. I can tell you that keeps me from sin sometimes. I mean, I want the primary motivation to be, I'm just so grateful to you, God. But there are times when when I'm about to think or do or say something or let myself get whatever crazy, angry, whatever it is, and, and there'll just be this moment as, you know, my God's an impartial judge. I mean, he... He's my father. That will never change. We're not talking about losing your salvation. But you know what? He's impartial. I will answer to him for that. That's a good good thing to have. It's like, you know, on a tool belt of holiness, that's one of the tools. It's not the only one, but it's good. I will give an account to him. Now, by the blood of Jesus, I am saved and I'm his. But how we live here does matter in eternity. So that's a good one. So Peter is saying, Live a holy life out of gratitude. And then verse 18 so helps us because if you're like me and you all were because everybody got really still and quiet and I saw brows furrowing when I was talking about holy lives. (laughs) You're going, but I can't do that, Al. Does that mean I forfeit my home? Does that mean I've got to be homeless? My hope is just kind of homelessly wandering around, but because I don't qualify as a holy life, does that mean I can't have hope or that it's going to be homeless? No. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Knowing that. So he just tells them, hey, listen, he tells them this, live a holy life, have a healthy mind, live a holy life because God is holy and live in reverential awe awe of them, of him, and then verse 18, because he knows they're getting worried at that moment, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So follow the logic. Follow the logic. In verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
And in verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. That's the same thing as your passions from the former ignorance, right? Do I need to spell those out for you? We live in South Florida. We all know what the passions of the former ignorance are. Okay, yeah, some of you are shaking your head more strongly than others. No, Al, what are you talking about? (laughs) Okay, just go to South Beach. There you have them. All right, so... But so he, he says, don't live that way. And then in 18, he said, because you were ransomed from that way. But he also says, and God is holy and he will judge you impartially. Though he's your father, he's not an indulgent father that's going to let you do whatever you want. God never spoils his children. He loves them. But he's the ultimate father. So you see all those working together. Give me confidence in verse 18. That I've been ransomed from these feudal ways. Here's the idea that Peter is putting forth before us. It is the idea in the Old Testament of someone's property being sold and they lose it because of either their sin or because they were in financial problem. And the idea of being ransomed here, the, the Greek word is lutreo, is someone comes and buys the house. Oh, you lost your house? You were foreclosed on? You're now living in a hotel on Biscayne Boulevard? They go without you knowing, buy your house back. Come to your hotel room, your little Motel 6, nothing against Motel 6, and knock on the door and say, hi. And they hand you the deed, says, here's your home back. And you're like, what? Yes, yes. So therefore, For that one, you live in a way that honors him. For that one, you hold him in reverential awe. For that one, he's your father. He's your judge. He's impartial. He's all. He's the full orb deal. And that one gives you that home. You don't earn it. He gives it to you. But then live in it by faith in a way that honors him. Does that make sense? All right, everybody relaxed on that one. I got it. Okay. And so that is wonderful. When we do that, isn't it interesting? Even if we do it imperfectly, even if we fail, but we're quick to repent. When we do that, isn't it amazing? Suddenly, our vision gets a little clearer about that grace to be revealed, doesn't it? The, the current trials, though they're hard, they're not quite as hard. They're not quite as confusing. That mental block I had, that, that you know, just like, what's going on? Suddenly, it, it comes clarity. Why? Because when I choose to indulge my former self, the fog comes. But when I trust God, I'm not talking perfection, I'm talking direction. I'm talking faith. Okay? And that home, you can never earn that home. You can't. He bought it for you. You lost it. We all lost it at the fall. But he buys it through the blood of Jesus. That's what this says. Silver or gold could not pay for that home. And then he gives it to you. He says, now live in it as one who belongs to the home and who's the child of the father of that home. And then when we blow it, he forgives us. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing grace. That's why that song was written. So here's... Here's how, he kind of, here's how he kind of takes us to the end. Verse 20, 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter's now speaking of Jesus. 
but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Verse 21. Who through him, Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What you have before you, brothers and sisters, is an ancient creed of the church. This is probably a creed that was verbally passed down, like a confession of faith that made its way into Peter's writing by God's will. But look at it with me. He's writing to suffering Christians, and he's saying, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed in Christ, not halfway, but fully. That's hope's home. And he's saying the way we do that is develop a healthy mind and live holy lives. And then he says, and you've been ransomed by this blood of Jesus. And then he comes back to the gospel. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're not a Christian, here's the gospel. You ready? It's right here in these pages. If you're with someone that's a friend of yours that's a believer, ask them to explain this to you afterwards. Here's the gospel, my friend. Verse 20. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The gospel of Jesus is Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, it was God's plan. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That the Son, the eternal Son of God, would come to earth as as a man and die on the cross for us and rise again from the dead. He was foreknown. So this, God's plan from all eternity is that God the Son would first suffer and then receive glory. Don't you get it? He's writing to Christians who are suffering. And he's saying, that was true for him. It's true for you. Our suffering, though hard, is not outside of God's plan because it wasn't outside of God's plan for our Savior. Next, in verse 20, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Jesus was born. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died a sacrificial death on the cross. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. And after suffering on the cross and dying, he then rose from the dead three days later, and then at the end of, uh, in the middle of verse 21, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, and then Jesus ascended into heaven, And by the way, Peter was an eyewitness to all of this, all of it. So he's writing authoritatively under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is true. I saw it because he's writing to people that never saw Jesus and gave him glory so that that's an important circle. So that so that your faith and hope are in God. See, the way he started, set your hope fully on the grace that's to come. He ends your faith and hope are in God. So here's my question to you. Where does your hope live? Where does it live? Dear friend, may it live. May it live in that home, in the city of God, whose foundation is Jesus Christ, whose windows are a healthy mind, whose walls are a holy life. Because listen, God built the home, God purchased the home, and God placed us in the home. And eternally, we will never be homeless. But we can wander a little bit on this earth. If you're wandering, come back home. Come back home. By the grace of God, by the mercies of God, come back home. So friends, what I want to do is I want to engage in a practical exercise. A practical exercise of collectively setting our hope on the grace to be revealed to us in Christ. And you know how I want to do it? I want to think about that grace We're going to celebrate now communion. So ushers, would you now begin to take your places to serve us? As the ushers are beginning to take their places to serve us, let me be very clear with you, church. Very clear for you. 
Communion is for all those who dwell in hope's home by faith in Christ alone. That home that was purchased by the blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant, the blood that's on the deed, the blood that's over the doorposts of that home. The blood of Jesus that validates this covenant. So communion is only for those that dwell in that home. If you do not dwell in that home, here's my appeal to you. When the ushers in just a moment come down and begin to serve us, and ushers, you can go ahead and make your way down. When the ushers, when that communion plate comes down, I ask you respectively to let it pass you. And as it passes you, let it call to your heart and let it speak to you of a grace and a salvation and a hope that you have never known. But perhaps God is giving you life and unstopping your ears and unblinding your eyes and giving you the understanding that you need Jesus and repent and believe in him. And if you do that, I want to talk to you afterwards or Corey or whomever, those who brought you or you came with. But before we receive the elements, I want to talk to you just a moment about that blood. Because what we're celebrating here is the body and blood of Christ. These are symbols of the covenant that gives us that home. Forged in the blood, the body and blood of Christ. But I want to talk about the blood. And to do that, I want to go back to 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It's on the screen. I asked David to put it on the screen. Read quietly that text. and Let me read it out loud again. And I want us to think about the blood before we receive communion. Knowing that you were ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. This is, that's, it's talking about salvation here. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So one of the pictures of being redeemed or ransomed, that word ransomed is the Greek word lutrao. One of it is of a home that was lost in foreclosure, And God buying that home with his money, with his goods, the blood of Jesus. Because no silver or gold could buy that home. Only God's son's blood could buy that home. And restoring it to you, okay? But there's another picture. There's another picture. Because in that text, you'll note that he references the lamb without blemish. Do you see it? So Peter knew that when he referenced that, the minds, especially of Jewish Christians, but most Christians by that point would go back to another lamb. A lamb that 1400 years earlier, in about 1400 BC, was slain or sacrificed and its blood placed over the doorposts of the homes of God's people. I'm speaking of the Passover lamb. And so the Passover lamb is associated with Israel being ransomed from slavery. Remember, they were slaves for 400 years to Egypt and Pharaoh. And on the night that they were set free from their slavery, God came and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But for the firstborn of the homes where the blood of the lamb was over, he spared those firstborns. Those were his people, Israel. And he delivered them by the blood of the lamb. So the picture here is now of God ransoming you from slavery. Now, Egypt has always been used as an image of the world and Pharaoh of Satan. So now we understand that that lamb and that blood 
And that ransom from slavery pointed to the greatest lamb, Jesus Christ, whose greatest blood, more precious than gold, is, is given to ransom us from our slavery. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you've been set free. And just like Israel was set free to ultimately get into the promised land, so we are set free to get into the ultimate promised land. Now we're talking about that grace to be revealed fully at the coming of Christ. And this is a reminder. This clears away the fog from your mind. This this quiets the noise in your head from all your trials and tribulations and whatever you're going through right now. This helps you to get clear vision and a healthy mind and to live a holy life in light of what God has done for us. The blood of Christ, that perfect lamb, was shed for you to ransom you. So I'm going to pray, and then ushers, you're going to begin to serve everyone. Please wait till we're all served After we're done, I'll lead us on receiving the elements. Let me just pray. Lord, I don't know everyone here in this room. I don't know where they're at. But I pray that you, by your power and your spirit, would, would, through the gospel that has been preached, through these images that you give us, Lord, through this covenant, this, this sign and seal of the covenant, Lord, the gospel would just speak. The gospel would be enacted. The gospel, oh, Lord Jesus, you'd build your church right now. You'd save. You'd encourage those that are in a fog. They would get clarity. Those that feel homeless, their hope is sitting on the side of the road somewhere, lost its way. You'd bring it back to where it lives, in your city, Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you're being served, I want to read a few texts about the blood. Ushers, if you please would begin to serve. I want you to meditate on the blood. Don't let your mind wander here. Think. Develop a healthy mind. Listen to these scriptures. They're on the screen. Hebrews 9, 13 to 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Oh, friends, do you see the, the tearways coming off? your legs unencumbered so you can serve the living God, not from a guilty conscience, but because you've been set free. Hebrews 10, 19 and 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you're here this morning and your conscience is marred, you did stuff last night or you didn't do stuff last night or today that you think separates you from God, friend, that's a lie from Satan or from your own misinformed mind or from some worldly thought of who God is. 
Your access to God is secured not by your conduct, but by what Jesus has done. Run to your Father. He made a way for you, sacrificing His Son. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. And Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're speaking to Christ here. And to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations and Cuba and Miami and Puerto Rico and Nicaragua and, 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 and just on and on, Colombia, whatever, every nation, every people, white, black, brown, whatever. Culture was created by God. He trumps it all. He redeems it all, ultimately in Christ. And he calls people out from every nation and tribe and people. And oh, church, that's us. And you know why? Because of the broken body of Christ. Take and eat the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Take and drink the blood of Christ poured out for you. Let us stand and let us sing in Christ alone.